brothers and sisters and friends of the truth. I didn't have opportunity to give Brother Ben Scroggins the subject that we would like to speak on this evening. But my subject is, How Readest Thou? In the book of John, in the fifth chapter, in the 39th verse, John, in recording some of the words of the Master, said, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. You'll remember last, I think it was last Sunday evening, that there was an announcement made here at the Bible school that an article had appeared in the Watchtower, which is a vehicle or a publication of the Jehovah's Witness, giving a description and a history and an outline of the doctrines and the beliefs of the Christadelphian body. Now, it's not our purpose this evening to go into this article and to discuss its merits or otherwise, except one small portion of it. But it did trigger off in my mind a certain concept or subject, what we might call what is a true Christian scripturally defined. Now, if you'll permit me very briefly, I'm going to give you a viewpoint of another religious body which were very zealous in their proclamation of what they believe to be the truth. And they feel like that they have done their people, their congregation, and the public at large a public service by giving a public, we'll say, profile of what the Christadelphians believe and teach. And it's entitled, with a rather loaded word, it's called Christadelphianism. Is it of God or of men? Do you believe in the Trinity? No, the rather religious stranger replied. Do you believe in eternal torment? No. Do you believe in the earth being destroyed? No, I do not. Do you believe in going to heaven? No. Do you believe in tithing? No. Do you believe in going to war? No, not as far as we ourselves are concerned. And what may your religion be? I am a Christadelphian. Christadelphians claim to base their answers to such questions on their acceptance of the Bible as wholly inspired. They encourage personal study of religion and as a result, they usually know far more about their religion than do most other professed Christians. Among them, there is no salaried clergy, no clergy laity, and each ecclesia or a congregation elects its own serving brethren to take care of its matters, and all these must be males, though there is no objection to their women contributing to their religious periodicals. The most important feature of their way of worship is the weekly Sunday celebration. Now, we do not refer to it as a celebration. I don't care for the word, but anyway. They, uh, they, uh, the keeping of what they refer to as the uh, celebration of the Lord's Supper. Christadelphians do not vote, nor do they join unions of any kind. 
They are opposed to smoking. They are opposed to divorcing, going to court, and marrying outsiders. Now you know, this doesn't offend me, does it offend you? We don't mind being quoted as long as we are quoted accurately. And up to this point, they're quoting us pretty accurately. According to their own strictness, they frown on worldly amusements. The name Christadelphian means of Christ's brothers, or brethren of Christ. And it was adopted by their founder, Dr. John Thomas, and his associates to distinguish them and their stand on war from others claiming to be Christians who hold no such scruples. Now most of us in the truth realize and know the history of the Christadelphian body and know that the stand that the Christadelphians took or the brethren during the Civil War was taken because of the laws of conscription during the Civil War. And the authorities, both in the Union and the Confederacy, demanded that these religious people adopt a name so that they might go on record as a historic peace church. Before long, Dr. Thomas was devoting all of his time to religious interests. And between 1844 and 1847, he crystallized his thinking and his position on what he considered to be Christianity, upon which he had himself baptized. He won a following in the United States, and particularly in Great Britain, to which he returned later on three different occasions. And when he died in 1871, a close associate, Brother Robert Roberts, took the lead into his death until 1898, and he was followed by C.C. Walker and so on. Christadelphianism is one of the smallest sects of Christendom. Now here's an interesting figure, and uh, I'm assuming that it is accurate, the man who took the time to write this article. It is quite lengthy. Some 20,000... That's the number uh, that this man brings up. There's some 20,000 Christadelphians throughout the world, and the majority of them are found in Great Britain, with the rest chiefly scattered throughout other speaking, uh, English-speaking lands. Now, this individual who has taken upon himself the grave responsibility of giving, we say, uh, supposedly an accurate picture of Christadelphianism, he mentions four basic shortcomings. We're not going to take them up tonight, but we're just mentioning the articles. I know that many of you will be stimulated to get a hold of a copy of this watch time. He takes up our shortcomings, uh, the product of human reasoning. Uh, he criticizes us for uh, disbelief in Jesus' pre-human existence. Uh, we are criticized for denying the personality of Satan and his demons. Uh, we are criticized, justly so, that uh, we refer to Jesus as, as being a representative rather than a substitute. Uh, we're criticized because uh, we deny that it is a heavenly kingdom, that we believe it will be a, literally king, a literal kingdom established here in the earth. The man, in some ways, has done a remarkable job, but a lot of it is misleading, and I'm not offended. You'll notice over here on the board, and this is what went on in my mind when I read this article, the very top question there, and there's not a brother or sister who has not been confronted with this question, and it's a fair question. That is, do you believe that only Christadelphians will be saved? Well, the only way that we feel that we can answer that is scripturally. Now, first of all, let me say, and I believe that all of us will basically agree, we don't claim that the term Christadelphian will save anybody. 
We believe that an individual with an intelligent and correct understanding of Scripture, and by his immersion into water, that he becomes a brother of Christ. And if that individual walks faithfully and consistently to the precepts and the laws and the judgments of the Master, we believe that eventually he will be given the gift of immortality. Therefore, when we are asked the questions, do we believe that only Christadelphians will be saved, we emphasize that it matters little what we call ourselves, but it matters a lot of what we believe and how we walk in those beliefs. Now, in the same book of John, in the 8th chapter, beginning at the 31st verse, here's one thing that the Master said when we're speaking about who will be saved. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now what is it that the truth makes us free from? Not just free from all of the religious darkness and hypocrisy and the rubbish that's cast out as religion. We believe that the truth will make us free from the law of sin and death. The Master said on this occasion, first an individual must believe on him, and then it is essential that the individual continue in his word. Now, in the 17th chapter of the same book, and I believe it's the third verse, this is some more words of the Master, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, I don't believe that I can get all the way to the board. It's not going to be necessary. But there is a point to me that, that I love to emphasize because I think it's uh, very characteristic of the Jews and it's very uh, characteristic of real, genuine brethren of Christ. And that is, we believe in the oneness of the Creator, the oneness of God, as opposed to this religious concept of three in one or one in three. We believe in the oneness of God. And that is what the Jews were constantly instructed. If we turn to the book of Deuteronomy, in the sixth chapter, we have this commandment given to Israel. Hear, hear this, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. Now the question can easily be asked, why the emphasis to the Jews in this particular age of their, uh, of their position here, why should it be emphasized to them that God is one? Well, any of us who know anything about the history of those nations who were contemporary to the Jews, they believed in a multiplicity of gods. They had idols, other people worshipped heavenly bodies, and there was always a plurality of God. Most of us are familiar with the fact that they had a God of war, a God of love, a God of fertility, all of these different gods. But Israel was the only people, the only nation, who believed in one God, and that this God shared his throne with no one, and that he, in other words, had no equal. So therefore, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now there's a lot of people in the world who do not share that very Jewish concept of God. There's a man who is recognized throughout the English-speaking world and even in other countries. 
who writes and his column is syndicated in many newspapers throughout this land. And this man, in the judgment of the religious world, is an authority on Scripture. And his word, in most cases, is final and accepted as genuine truth. He was asked this question. When Christ said that he was the Son of Man, what did he mean? And here's the answer that this man gives. In view of the fact that we find this phrase used over 80 times in the Gospel records, it must be of unusual significance. Now, I will agree with that. That this term that the Master used, that he was the Son of Man, it appears in the Scripture about 80 times, that is, in the Gospel records. And therefore, this man says, because it is, it must be of unusual significance. There were probably many reasons why Christ so designated himself, that is, the Son of Man. Now, notice this. He was truly God. But he was also truly man. And he came to identify himself with mankind and their needs. Also, while it is true that he was the promised son of David, he wished to make it abundantly clear that he had come to save men of every nation and race. In using the name Son of Man, therefore, he declared the universality of his offer of salvation, that he came to redeem all. It is impossible for the finite mind to grasp all the implications of the incarnation, that is, God coming into the world in human form, but it is a glorious fact. Now, do you see the kind of answer that this man is giving to those who seek his judgment and his opinion on these matters? He says it is a glorious fact, and in this act of God's love and mercy, salvation is free to all who will accept it. Now in the book of John again, and all of us are familiar with this, but it's real interesting when you paraphrase. John 3.16, and I guess if there's one thing that I'd like for any of you to retain of any of the remarks that we make tonight, if you, if you could remember this one thing, because this verse is quoted too much. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now if we believe what this minister, or supposedly the minister of the gospel says, this book, or this verse in the book of John would read thus, For God so loved the world that he gave himself, and that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what this man believes, that God had to take on mortality or the nature of man and come into human form so that he might affect this great salvation. Am I speaking too loud? I'm not speaking too loud. In other words, this individual here believes that God, now, now to me, we don't want to overemphasize that it's so often, that here's God, which the scripture says that he dwelleth in light unapproachable, and that he hath immortality, that he's the only one that hath immortality underived, and yet they believe, or anyone who believes in the Trinity, believes that one part of God, and mind you, we'd have to call it a third part, because, I mean, that's fair. A third part of God, or a part of God, took on mortality so that he might affect this salvation. And that is this man's definition of why Christ, over 80 times in the Gospel, said that he was the Son of Man. Now let's turn to the book of Acts for a moment. In Acts, the 8th chapter, beginning with the 5th verse. 
Now here's Philip preaching certain things to individuals desiring a knowledge of the truth or the plan of salvation. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord, in other words they were very attentive, gave heed unto the things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. And then dropping down into the 12th verse, the scriptures plainly tell us, and when these individuals who gave heed to what Philip was preaching, and when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning this kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they acted upon it, they were baptized, both men and women. Now many times we've heard it used here to make a point or to emphasize a point. They were baptized, both men, women, and children. All of us recognize the distinction. They were baptized, both men and women, indicating that these individuals were of mature enough judgment that they could respond to this gospel message or this proclamation of salvation, the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name. Now, all of our children and all of us have been raised of the things that constitute the kingdom, so it's not necessary for us to emphasize that. It might be pointed out, however, that it's a little more involved when you think in terms of the things concerning the name. And one of the things concerning the name of Christ or the Master is verily he took not on him the nature of angels or immortality, but he took on him the nature of his brethren. That is mortality. Or he had sin in the flesh. He was of Adamic constitution. And though he did no personal sin, though he did not yield at any time to the propensities of the flesh, he still died because he came into the world in a sin-stricken state. Sin was working in his members. It was every fiber of his body, and therefore, eventually, he had to yield to it. And the only reason that the Master was raised from the, from the state of the dead is that it was impossible that the death state should keep him because he personally did no transgression. What then is a Christian Elton? We feel like that there ought to be some answer. Since we ask, do you believe that only Christadelphians will be saved? What then is a Christadelphian? Well, all of us are familiar with the fact that it's taken from that Greek word, Adelphus, which means brother and Christ, Christ's brethren or brethren of Christ. And we've already mentioned the fact that Dr. Thomas, writing to the authorities during the Civil War period, asked the senators and congressmen, which they were in session, asked them to grant this people exemption from the conscription laws during that war. Therefore, do you believe that uh, only Christadelphians will be saved? We believe that only the truth can save. Next, what is a Christadelphian? We feel that we've answered it. It's a genuine brother of Christ. And then we can ask ourselves the question, will all Christadelphians be saved? Will all Christadelphians be saved? Unfortunately not. It's sad and it certainly should be sobering when you recognize that not because all of us or any of us bear the name Christadelphian does that automatically mean that we will gain this wonderful gift of immortality. We know through the teachings of the Master in Scripture that it's extremely essential that we walk worthy of this high vocation of eternal life and consequently putting on the name is only the first step. I don't believe that there's a brother or a sister or even some of our better informed young people would believe or defend the position that once you go into the waters of baptism and when you step forth that you're in a saved condition and that you've got automatically an interest into the kingdom. When we go into the waters of baptism and come forth, 
We have, in the eyes of God, changed our relationship. And therefore, the Creator demands of us that we walk faithfully and consistently and worthily of our profession. Let's turn to the book of 1 Peter for a minute. Now, Peter speaking here to the brethren in the fourth chapter, 17 through 19. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, Peter writing to the brethren, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let him that suffereth according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Now I ask you simply, brethren and you young people, does this sound like that because an individual is put on the name that he automatically is in a saved condition? condition? Definitely not. Alright, let's take a look at another scripture in the book of Galatians. Paul writing here. In Galatians, the sixth chapter... And the seventh and the eighth verse. Now this is Paul writing to the believers, and this is God's message and warning to the believers. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, brethren, I get from this, and I believe that you get from it, that an individual who souls to his flesh after having come through the waters of baptism, he dare not entertain the idea that he will stand approved before the Master, because God is not mocked. It's easy for you and I to be deceived, but God cannot be deceived, and therefore, brethren, it's mandatory and it's necessary that you and I walk faithfully you and I may come before the judgment seat of the Master, and we may be in a deceived state of mind thinking that we are worthy brethren. But the Scripture simply says that they that source of the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, and they that source of the Spirit are spiritual things, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. In the book of Luke, I want to refer uh, briefly to what Luke has to say. Luke 13th chapter, beginning at the 23rd verse. Then said one of them unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. And when once the master of the house is risen up, and has shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not, or a better rendition of that, I approved of you not, or which you are. And then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and so forth, and taught in thy streets. And he says that these individuals who come there asking that question, that many of them will stand rejected. Again, we're emphasizing the point that just because an individual bears the covenant name does not of itself constitute God's approval. Now, that brings up an interesting point. I don't know whether I'm going to be able to... Walk over here and not let's see if you can. That brings up an interesting point. It's a very simple illustration, but we should maybe emphasize it on your mind and remember it. 
speaking, the Christadelphian body is a small religious body. Exceedingly small. And I don't wonder if people ask this question. You mean to tell me you believe that only Christadelphians and those who believe that you do will be saved? We believe that we are all of the name Christadelphians. We believe that only the truth can save and that responsible adherence thereto. Therefore, Christadelphianism teaches that the rest of mankind will remain dead forever, including all children. Well, that sounds pretty harsh. But that's what the scripture says, and we're going to have to own up to it. He quoted it right there. Even children of Christadelphian parents. Now, I'll admit this is rather a fearful thing when you think of it in that light. And there's not any doubt in my mind that there's some here who are at different stages of considering the truth. If that question bothers you, the idea of children, if the event of death takes them, that, that's the last thing. Well, let me say this. I find it a hard doctrine to accept myself. You know why? Because it's contrary to the sentiment and the thinking of the flesh. As parents naturally shrink from the idea of children going into the state of death and remaining parents, but I think, brothers and sisters, that we are not preaching the truth if we don't emphasize the fact that since the scriptures are quiet on that subject, we have to be quiet. Don't you agree with that? We have to be quiet. We can't preach salvation to children that the scriptures don't, but these people do. In fact, they believe, and mind you, this is no malicious criticism, but these people believe that it's so necessary in the eyes of God to, to save all humanity that if they don't get it in this life, he'll give them a second chance. That's exactly what they believe in. We denounce and renounce that topic. We just don't want to. We don't subscribe to it. Let's turn to the book of Matthew for a minute. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, in the thirteenth and the fourteenth verse, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And then his admonition to the master, beware of false prophets. Now, brethren, I don't mean that be a farce, but that's what it meant. Beware of false prophets. Let's take a look at the book of Proverbs. There's a very interesting verse there that we'd like to call your attention. In Proverbs, the 14th chapter, in the 12th verse, Oh, how I've heard this quoted many times. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Isn't that a good scripture when you think there is a way that seemeth right? There's a lot of religious ideas. This man right here that we spoke of a while ago that writes, he's got a lot of ideas, religiously speaking. And there's a way that seemeth right in this man's eye. And let me tell you that this man is good. Good in the sense that he is a clean, moral, family man. And one thing I can give this man credit for. This man does emphasize clean living, clean walls. And I say the world is that much better because of men like this. But I don't say that what this man teaches is going to gain him the wonderful gift of immortality in the kingdom of God. Alright, let's take a look at the 16th chapter of Proverbs. There's a verse there, the second uh, uh, verse in Proverbs here in the 16th chapter. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits.
Right over here at the board again. Let it drop that there, because we're going to need a coin. Now, uh, we started out with the idea, what is the Christian down there, or what is a genuine brother of Christ? We've already covered some of today, but here's two very important things, and let me tell you that these things here change the mind of the general public. You know that, if you come to get this question here. So we're just drawing a profile on a genuine brother of Christ. We don't say it's easy, a lot of times that won't be simple. Now, which one of these statements are right? Are they because there's a vast difference between those two statements right here? We'll get to these later. These two right here. Which one of these are right scripture statements? The top one? Oh, 